Hey, I'm Bailey. I'm Michael. And welcome back to the Facing the Gates podcast. Uh, today, we are here to interview Father Dwight of Our Lady of the Rosary Catholic Church here in Greenville. Uh, how are you? How are you? I'm doing fine. Cool. So for our first question, um, just give us a little bit of your background, how you became a priest, and, and kind of your walk. Yeah, my background's pretty unusual. I was brought up in an evangelical independent Bible church in Pennsylvania, and uh, I w- came down here to South Carolina to attend Bob Jones University, which is a very Protestant, fundamentalist, sometimes anti-Catholic co- college. Mm-hmm. And while I was there, I became a member of the Anglican Church. It's the Church of England. Mm-hmm. Uh, here in the States, it's the same as the Episcopal Church. And uh, I felt a call to ministry, and I wanted to, this to happen in England. So I went to England and studied at Oxford to prepare for the uh, priesthood in the Anglican Church. After about 10 years of service in that church, uh, my faith pilgrimage was drawing me to the Catholic Church. I became a Catholic, and then 10 years later, I was called back to South Carolina to be ordained as a Catholic priest here in Greenville. And we've been here for the last 15 years serving um, in that role. Okay. Yeah, that's a very interesting, very interesting path to take. A lot of people wouldn't expect that coming from a background like that to eventually end up as Catholic. Yeah, it's definitely been a been unusual. And um, people say, "Well, you have you rejected your you know your evangelical background and your time in the Anglican Church?" And I've always said, "No, I've just added more to it." And as I became a Catholic, I understood that the Catholic Church had this very full and rich expression of the Christian faith, and I was drawn more and more to all of that. Okay. Okay. So, in the Christian walk, let's say someone's a Christian, what is the purpose and, and the place for them to go to church? Why should they go to church? Well, I can speak for the Catholic, for the Catholic Church, okay? When we go to church, church on Sunday, we go to Mass, okay? Mass is a celebration of the Eucharist, a celebration of what's sometimes called the Lord's Supper. And we believe that the bread and the wine at the altar is consecrated by the priest to become the body and blood of Christ. And Jesus said in, it's recorded in John's Gospel, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you do not have life within you. Okay, and so we basically believe that Jesus said it becomes the bread, the bread and the wine become his body and his blood. And therefore, even today, 2,000 years later, we believe this happens at the altar in a Catholic church at Mass. And that when you come to receive communion, you're therefore joining yourself with Jesus Christ, who said you had to do that to get, in, <laughs> to get into heaven. Okay, gotcha. so um, we would say when you come to church, therefore, you're coming to receive Jesus Christ, who invites you to come and receive him in communion. And furthermore, as Catholics, you need to have a church and you need to have a priest to be able to do that. You can't do that at home on your own. So therefore, the reason to go to church is to go to church and receive Jesus, body, blood, soul, and divinity, as he promised, and he invited us to do so. And some people will say, well, can't I just read the Bible and pray at home? I say, yeah, you can read the, read the Bible and pray at home, but you can't receive Jesus at home in the same way. Okay, that's a good answer. <clears throat> All right, and for our next question, what is the itinerary of your average service like? When, when you say itinerary, you mean like the running order? of the, Yes, um, sir. Okay, well, first of all, when you come to Mass, the, um, there will be a procession of the, the clergy and the servers as we come into the, into the presence of the Lord. This harkens back to 
some of the Old Testament Psalms where the Jews would process up the hill to the, te- to the temple in Jerusalem. And so the procession is going in, is leading us all into the Lord's presence. The first step after that in the liturgy, and the liturgy is what we call the, the, the church service, the first step in the liturgy is the confession. The priest invites the people to pause and remember the sins they've done over the last week and to confess them together to God. So we recite what's called the confitior, which is a confession together. I confess to Almighty God and to you, my brothers and sisters, we confess our sins. And then we receive uh, the ministry of the word. The ministry of the word consists of, on a Sunday, consists of an Old Testament reading, a psalm, a New Testament reading, and a gospel. And the gospel is, these are chunks from the Bible, which we read for our understanding. This is followed by a homily or a sermon, which usually takes between 10 and 15 minutes, in which the preacher expounds on the Bible readings that have been read for that day. After the ministry of the word, we go to what's called the ministry of the Eucharist, where the priest there goes from the pulpit where he was preaching to the altar, where he then uh, leads the congregation in the prayers uh, of consecrating the bread and the wine to become the body and blood of Christ and offer that praise and worship to God. Now, when this happens, Catholics believe that the sacrifice that Jesus made on the cross is actually brought into the present moment through the ritual of the Mass. And it is applied to the needs and the requests of the people who are praying at that point. So it's kind of like time travel, if you like. That what happened uh, when Jesus died on the cross, the saving work of mankind, is brought into the present moment and brought into that present place through this ritualistic action of the Mass. When that is completed, the people come forward to receive the bread and the wine and receive Jesus under the appearance of bread and wine. And then the Mass is concluded with some concluding prayers and then everyone leaves again okay and this act of worship called the mass takes place every sunday here in this parish there are three masses on a weekend saturday night sunday morning and sunday evening and then we have the mass also every day so every day uh, in the lower church at our lady the rosary uh, the priest is here and actually celebrates mass also interesting i think that gives a good explanation of how everything goes and the reason why everything is so I have a very good answer. Mm-hmm. And for our next question, what is the place of your church in your community? Our church is actually situated here in Greenville, South Carolina, in a very needy community. Um, when I first came here 11 years ago, I had a demographic study done. And the demographics of this area are, in socioeconomic terms, the worst in Greenville County. We have long-term residential poverty. Because we're right on Interstate 85, we also have transient poverty, homeless people who are traveling through and stay in some of these rundown hotels all around here. Okay, And the low level of income also means that there are various other social problems associated with that. There's um, human trafficking, prostitution, gangs, drug deals, and so forth, all taking place here in the community around our church. So. We have an active ministry of uh, called the St. Vincent de Paul Society, which offers a food pantry for those in need. We also have a house which we purchased, which is called the Mother Teresa House, which is where the needy, those who are needy can come on and uh, receive help and assistance, referring them to the other caring agencies in Greenville that can give them assistance. Mother Teresa House also um, is a place for 
uh, local meetings. So we have an Alcoholics Anonymous that meets there, for instance. The other ministry we have in the community is our school. We have a K-4 to grade, grade 12 school, and we make an active attempt to have um, offer scholarships to kids from needy families. So uh, we try to see ourselves as having a real active ministry in the community, not only to the Catholics who come and worship here. Yeah, I think that's, a to me personally, that's a very important part of a ministry is the activeness and the reaching out to your community. Yeah. So kind of shifting gears and talking about um, some theological issues and um, basically kind of getting into that. Um, how is your church governed and why is a pope necessary? Well, the Catholic Church is governed according to the um, the kind of rules of governance or the traditions of governance that came down to us from the Roman Empire. Remember, the Catholic Church is 2,000 years old. It's called the Roman Catholic Church because it actually dates back to the Roman Empire. If you think about it, this is an astounding thing. There is no other institution that has been around for the last 2,000 years and is still thriving and growing and is still active. And so a lot of the patterns of Roman govern governance of the Roman Empire were adopted by the early um, Christian church and became part of Roman governance, okay? So basically, as the Christian church began to grow across the Roman Empire, the different bishops were in charge of the churches in the different cities. And one bishop we considered to be a successor of the apostles. Jesus came from God, and he gave his authority to the 12 apostles. They then handed on their authority, which they received from Jesus, to their successors, okay? And these different bishops went out and became the elders or the bishops of the different churches of the different cities of the Roman Empire. As those churches grew and there became more than one church in every city, the, the bishops needed to have extra hands on deck. And they therefore ordained priests who became, if you like, the fingers of the bishop, um, an extension of the bishop in each of the different churches in that city. As the church expanded further, those city centers expanded in a geographical way in the area around the city to become what's called a diocese. A diocese is a, ge a geographically identified um, unit of the Catholic Church. And dioceses are ruled over by a bishop in conjunction with his priests, who are the um, governors of each individual parish or each individual church. Each individual parish also is a geographically identified unit. So a, a Catholic parish will actually be able to show you on the map where their boundaries are and where the next parish begins. This is kind of an amazing structure because it means that all across Europe in the Middle Ages was actually broken down into these manageable administrative units. Think, if you like, in a political sense, of America being broken down into states and counties, okay? Mm -hmm. The Catholic Church is broken down into archdioceses, which are groupings of dioceses, dioceses, and, and then within the diocese, parishes. And although it sounds cumbersome, it's actually very, very efficient. It works very well, even today. So my, I'm the pastor of this particular parish, Our Lady of the Rosary. My boss is the Bishop of Charleston, and his diocese covers the whole state of South Carolina. Okay, And our diocese of South Carolina, or Charleston, is in the Archdiocese of Atlanta, which covers five different dioceses in the southeastern, southeastern United States. This is replicated all over the world. So you'll find bishops from Africa and Asia and Latin America. So the Catholic Church is all over the world, broken down into dioceses and parishes and archdioceses. Okay. And why is a pope necessary? Yes. Because you need a boss, I guess. 
<laughs> okay. Um, and when I was becoming a Catholic, one of the things which really struck me and helped me to become a Catholic was the realization that in the Protestant churches, there were tens of thousands of different Protestant churches, and they all seemed to have their own beliefs and have their own governance and basically do their own thing. And I was saying to myself, well, where's the idea of Christian unity within all of this? Um, all these different churches with all their different forms of government, all their different theologies, all their different liturgical practices. So I was drawn to the Catholic Church because of this sense of unity that we have. And from my point of view, and I think this is my, from my experience as well, what I call the Protestant problem is what happens when one Protestant disagrees with his, his brother who's also a Protestant and they both believe that their interpretation of the Bible is the right one. They can only do one of two things. They can say, well, it doesn't really matter. Let's just overlook it and still be brothers. Or, sorry, we're going to go our separate way. I'm going to go and start my own church. Okay? So I couldn't live with that. And when I was confronted with the different quarrels and disagreements in the Christian church, I then saw that the Catholics had a referee in the game. They had somebody whose authority was above it all and who could look down and make the judgment and make the call when there was a disagreement. Now, this authority structure, as we call it, relies on the Pope, who's, who's the referee in the game, if you like. But the, I was also impressed because the Catholic Church has an authority structure which is not reliant only on the Pope. It also has this global authority. So the Catholic Church was able to ask what Christians believed in Africa and Asia and North America and Europe and to consult all of those Christians about these particular issues. But also, it had an authority which was rooted in Scripture and in 2,000 years' worth of tradition, 2,000 years of asking certain questions. Sometimes I'll joke with people where they have a question, I'll, I'll say, well, don't worry, the Catholic Church has the answer because you can bet that question has been asked once before. And so they've taken time to work it out. So they had a geographical authority structure, they had a historical authority structure, um, and they also had one which was very impressive in that the Catholic Church is universal, not just in terms of theology, but we have all sorts of experts to, to, to draw on expert opinion from the fields of things like um, science and medicine and politics and history. So, for instance, when Christians have to ask a question like, is genetic cloning of, in, of human beings um, a viable and a an ethical thing to do. If you have only the Bible, you say, well, actually, cloning isn't really mentioned in the Bible. You know, it's a it's a two thousand year old you know document. Right. The Catholic Church would say, okay, we have the Bible to guide us about pro life issues, but we also have Catholic geneticists and Catholic ethicists, Catholic philosophers, who can also weigh in and bring their expertise and their education and their intellect to help us to make these decisions. Okay. Sorry, yeah. that's a long answer, no, but that's no. where the Pope fits into it all. <laughs> it, it's, I think it's a good thing um, structurally to have something, and obviously that functions well if it's stood the test of time, but I think sometimes it can be like... I think it, intimidating would be well, for... Yeah, it's... So for the Pope thing specifically, because I know that's a big issue for a lot of Protestants, Um or, or people who aren't even Christian, and they just say, well, look at the Pope, blah, blah, blah. Um, I think in, in theory it's a good thing if you have a good Pope, but if you have a not good Pope or someone who's mediocre, then it, then it kind of raises questions like, is it, a, is it a good 
if if the pope is good then you, it's a good are you idea. saying what about bad popes? Right. Yes. Okay. It's, it's a very good question. If you read church history, and I'm a very a keen fan of church history, mm. we have had some real stinkers, you know, and someone someone has said, well, you know, at least he didn't deny the faith, and I've said, well, that pope didn't even know enough about the faith to be able to deny it. Okay. These are men who were murderers, who were poisoners, who were thieves. These are really wicked wicked men. Not just, stu- and we've had a fair few who've been stupid and incompetent too. Okay. <laughs> My response to that was, I actually had to deal with people like that in the Protestant church too, okay? I had pastors who were, um, you know, adulterers, men who were had their hand in the, in the cookie jar and they were embezzlers and they were cheating and they were taking money. We all know about the tele, uh, Protestant televangelists, for instance, who, you know, preach, give me $20 and I'll, and I'll make sure that your grandmother is healed or whatever. Mm-hmm. And the prosperity gospel guys, okay, so... I think every Christian group, indeed every religion for that matter, has its has its bad leadership and its crooked people. Um, and indeed, if you read the Bible, it's a pretty checkered history as well, you know, so that you find that um, Abraham was an adulterer, uh, David was an adulterer and, an, and a murderer, um, Judas betrayed Jesus, Peter denied Jesus. Okay, so you have these sinners all the way down through church history and through the Bible history as well. And... My view is, well, what did you expect? Okay, <laughs> you know, what did you expect? Did you, did you expect the Catholic Church or any church, for that matter, to be perfect? Um, of course not. Okay, we all realize that we're human. We have frailty. When the guy at the top is is wicked, it's especially hard to take. Okay, but Catholics roll with it like we roll with our own frailties and infirmities, and say this is part of the human drama. This is part of the human race. This is part of human history. So kind of bouncing off of that, um, how do you handle controversy and the, this is probably a big question, but the numerous sex scandals that have happened in the Catholic Church, that's a deterrent for people on the outside. How do you handle that f- um, for people who have that question, both in on, on the, who are in the Catholic Church and who are not in the Catholic Church? How do you right. answer I don't that? Wanna, I don't want to um, you know, get involved in special pleading here. But my answer would be largely the same answer of what about the bad popes? And that is um, Christian leaders, not just Christian leaders, but church leaders and actually school teachers, um, police, many, many leaders in society have been caught with their pants down, okay, and have been caught in sexual scandal. And if you read a book by a guy called Philip Jenkins, um, which is called Pedophile Priests. He's actually a historian at the University of Pennsylvania. I think he might have moved on now. But anyway, he went through and documented all of the cases of the sex scandals and so forth and came up with the data on it. And as it turns out, um, the least like in society, the least likely person to actually abuse, sexually abuse a minor is a Christian minister. And amongst Christian ministers, the least likely to abuse a minor is a Catholic priest. Okay, statistically, doctors and farmers are much more likely to abuse minors than Christian ministers. However, because the standard for the Christian minister is higher, um, it makes a better headline. Okay, and it makes a big headline, and it is a serious scandal. I'm not downplaying it. Don't get me wrong, but when the scandal comes up, that's the way I deal with it. I say, "Yep, it happens." It's terrible. We should do everything we can for the victims. We should do everything to actually um, uh, 
you know, hand the perpetrator over to the law, the law and um, worse in my mind, almost worse than the scandal itself were the cover-ups that went on. Mm-hmm. Um, and for all of us who are faithful Catholics, we're, scand- we're still scandalized and upset by the stuff that goes on. And But to balance that out, I can also say the Catholic Church has been in the forefront of putting child protection measures in place. Um, I can tell you as a Catholic priest, we have so many um, regulations now about these things that the Catholic Church has put into place to try to stop this, these things from happening. So, okay. Is this, is this kind of a numbers game? Because let's, okay. Uh, let's say there are, this is just a number, not exact number, but let's say there's 50 priests but let's say there's 200 doctors. Statistically, are, are you looking at like percentage-based abuse or, or okay? I don't, know, I don't know the details anymore. Philip Jenkins lays it out. He's, he was a professional historian, so he looked at all those statistics and those comparisons okay. to be able to look at it. Okay, that's yeah. fair. Yeah, because I, I was just wondering if it's like, oh, well, there's just more doctors, so it's statistically it's more It's easy to think from they... the headlines, oh, there are way more Catholic priests who are pedophiles than any, any, any right. other profession. Yeah. In fact, the statistics don't bear it out. Yeah. You have to remember also sometimes when the headlines say, 150 Catholic priests accused of child sex abuse. This is because they've actually done investigations, and the, and the um, dates for the offenses actually go back like 50 or 60 years. Okay, so the offenses are spread out over a long period of time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I think the Catholic Church is kind of like the the rag doll for like anyone who wants to dog on Christians or whatever. You know, you can just. Look at the Catholic Church and say, yeah. oh, well, we'll just pick something. The other thing I would point out, and again, I'm not defending at all, but I'm just trying to put the facts as they are. That's fine. Is the Catholic Church has a far more um, rigorous record keeping. We know where our priests are. We know when they were ordained, where they've been serving. And so it's easier to track them down and track these offenses. Um, a friend of mine who um, was in a Baptist church reported to me how his teenage son was abused by the youth minister in their Baptist church. But the, because the Baptist church is a much more free-flowing kind of organization, this guy was fired from his job, moved to Texas, and got another job as a, as a youth director in a, in a Baptist church. Okay? Yeah. It's because so, all eyes are on the Catholic church. So, so there was no... The Catholic church keeps track of people a lot better. Right. Yeah. <clears throat> okay, so I think if there's... Anything that's, I, I think one of the big things that is unique about the Catholic Church and its theology is purgatory. I think a lot of people look at that and they're like, well, where's that in the Bible? And, you know, right. so can you explain what exactly is the dogma of purgatory and how does that work? Okay, this answer is going to be a little bit long, okay? That's fine. Um, first of all, Catholics are not a Bible-only religion, okay? We love the Bible, we read the Bible, we venerate the Bible, we believe it's in God's inspired word, but... We believe that the Bible is properly interpreted by the, the, the authority of the church. So the church actually tells us how to understand the Bible and how to interpret the Bible. And over the 2,000 years of church tradition, certain beliefs have actually also grown up which don't contradict the Bible but are not specifically in the Bible. One example, for instance, is the doctrine of the Holy Trinity, that we believe that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Well, that's not actually in the Bible. Okay, that's a doctrine that developed in the church in the early years 
when we began to ponder who Jesus really was. Okay, so purgatory is one of those things. Once we began to ponder the nature of salvation and this life and the eternal life, um, purgatory emerged as a um, logical consequence of that. So it's not specifically in the Bible, but it doesn't contradict what's in the Bible. Okay, and let me explain why. To explain what purgatory is, I first have to explain what sin is. Okay, sin, the book of Romans says, um, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Okay, so sin is therefore anything in our lives which um, limits us or holds us back from being all that God created us to be. Okay, the glory of God, a second century theologian said, the glory of God is a man fully alive, a human being fully alive. So if we're fully alive, we are operating on all eight cylinders. We are operating to the fullness of our gifts, the fullness of our intellect, the fullness of our virtue. We are the, the very best human being that God created us to be. Okay, Sin is anything which keeps us from that. Okay, Sin is not just the naughty things we do. Sin are the things that we do and the things that we don't do which keep us from being all that we could be. To use an analogy, let's say um, Michael here is gifted as a world-class athlete, okay? Um, and anything that you would do, the bad junk food that you eat or the lack of training that you don't, you're too lazy to do would be a sin because it's keeping you from becoming the world-class athlete that you could be, okay? So once we understand what sin really is, we can then understand the rest of the, rest of the picture, if you like, okay? So the sin that I do and the, thing, the good things that I don't do and the bad things that I do are keeping me from being that person God wants me to be, that perfect, that perfect creation that he made me to be. Now, sin therefore alienates us from God and alienates us from our full potential and who God wants us to be. So that sin needs to be forgiven. And forgiveness of sin is won by Jesus on the cross. We can't forgive ourselves. God forgives us through the redemption, the redemptive work of Jesus Christ on the cross. He pays the price for human sin. Now, there's two, for Catholics believe there's two aspects to that sin. One is the sin itself, which needs to be forgiven, and the other is the effects of that sin. Okay? If you throw a baseball through my window, I forgive you for that, but you still have to pay for the window. Okay? So that's the sin and the effects of the sin. Catholics believe we can be forgiven by our faith in Jesus Christ and trusting in Jesus Christ and our sins can be forgiven, but we still have to pay the price for those, for those sins. We're not earning forgiveness. The forgiveness is a gift from God, but the price still needs to pay, be paid. The window still needs to be paid for, okay? So the way we do that is by, in this life, the more we the more the good things that we do and the more the bad things we stop doing is helping to pay that price. It's not winning forgiveness. The sins are forgiven by Jesus, but we're still participating with Christ's work to be able to pay the price, if you see. Okay, now, sure. if we die without all the price being paid, that's what purgatory is. Okay, Purgatory is a place where some people call it an antechamber of heaven. Everybody who goes to purgatory is going to heaven. Okay? But they still have they still have some um, purgation or some cleansing or some work to do before they're prepared to go there. Somebody has said it's a bit like being expected to wash your hands before dinner. Okay, 
So you're definitely going to get to dinner, but you have to go and wash up first. You're definitely going to get to heaven, but you have to finish this work of purifying, being purified by God's grace to get you into his presence. Okay, so I have two questions on that. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> One, um, and I don't mean to take the, the ultra-Protestant route, but I think with a lot of the churches we've been to, um, the, the Protestant response would be, well, Jesus died on the cross. Our sins are paid for. Why, why, you know, where's, what, what's the point of purgatory? Because isn't right. it already paid for? And it's a very good question, okay? It's a matter of human dignity, okay? When God gives us free will, he actually gives us the gift to make choices, and that gives us human dignity. Therefore, we need to be responsible for the choices that we make. And it's, it's a matter of human dignity to be responsible for the choices you make, okay? Therefore, if you steal $20 from me, I might be able to spare that $20 and, and forgive you and say, you know, don't worry about it. I forgive you for stealing $20 from me. But if you have human dignity and I respect your human dignity, I will say, how are you going to pay that back? Okay, I will expect you to pay it back because you have responsibility for your actions and you therefore want, you should actually want to pay that $20 back if you're really sorry, okay? And so Catholics say that we are in purgatory and in the works that we do, we're not actually winning our redemption. We're not actually winning Christ's forgiveness, but we are cooperating with God's grace. In other words, through the cross, God gives us the power to do these things. We then sort of hold hands with him and say, right, I'm going to use your grace and your power in my life to change things and to actually take take charge and to follow you and be your disciple. Okay. Um, the second question is how exactly the doctrine of purgatory kind of rings out because you have some views of purgatory where it's basically like hell light and then you have other versions of purgatory where it's, uh, you know, it's, it's a little nicer. So is, is it dogmatic? Is there a dogmatic view of what exactly the experience of purgatory is? The, you'll or? find it in the Catechism of the Catholic Church. The, cate- the purgatory is much what I explained to you about being a place of purgation. Mm-hmm. Whether that place of purgation is punishment or whether it's actually, um, in other words, if it's painful or not, is uh, a matter of discussion and a matter of speculation. I regard it to be painful in the way that, again, to use the analogy about athletics, Michael, it's painful in the way that training for a sport would be painful or climbing a mountain would be painful. If I want to climb Mount Everest, uh, I have to train to be able to do that. And then climbing the mountain is going to be risky. It's going to be dangerous. It's also going to be painful, uh, you know. And so climbing the mountain is actually, it's going to be that kind of a pain, a pain which is rewarding. The pain that you would have if you're practicing a musical instrument to become a great, a great pianist or a great guitarist or a great violinist. It would be painful to go through the discipline and the training and the practice to get to that point, but it's that kind of pain. It's not pure punishment and pain for its own sake. Okay. All right. Mm-hmm. Um, so one other question. Um, if if I were to pick up, because there's a lot of theological questions we could ask, but right. I wanted to pick out like probably the most definitive ones and some of the more, I guess, off-putting things, just so that there's an answer for people. So why pray to Mary and the saints? And why do you keep the the bones of dead guys? Right. 
Well, on our church tour, I explained about relics and, and, and what, what that means. So um, I'll touch on that briefly. But first of all, the question that a lot of people have is why, pro, why pray to Mary and the saints? Was that your, your question? Right. Yes. It's kind of a double question, but yeah. First of all, I need to use, explain the, the language. When we use the word pray in the Catholic Church for this sort of thing, praying to Mary and the saints, we're actually using an archaic form of English, which simply means ask. So if you go to a Shakespeare play, for instance, you might hear one of the characters say, what day of the hour is it pray, my lord? Okay, or, or pray, where are you going, sir? Okay, and the word pray in that Elizabethan English is used in the word to ask. In other words, I'm asking you what time is it? Pray, what time is it? Okay, and so we use the word pray in this context to simply mean ask. And so when I quote, pray to Mary, I am asking Mary to pray with me like a prayer partner, okay? Because of who Mary is and who the saints are, we believe that they have reached that perfection that God has granted, and therefore they are in heaven and closer to God than we are, and therefore we can pray with them as our prayer partners in heaven. Um, it's kind of like a prayer request type thing. Excuse me? It's kind of like a prayer request. It is. It but is. but better, basically. Yeah. Uh, think of it like this. There's an old lady in your church who you know is a really um, holy person, and you say, would you please pray, you, and her name's Hilda, you would say, Hilda, would you please pray for my mother who's sick? Because you know Hilda knows how to pray, and she's close, she's close to the Lord. Okay. Yeah. All right. And then what about the relics? Relics are the, well, first of all, I'll explain for people who like detail. There are three um, categories of relics. A relic is an object or a, a piece of the person's body who from, associated with a saint. So a first-class relic is actually a portion of that saint's body. So if you see a relic in a Catholic church of, let's say, um, St. Faustina, a Polish nun who died in the beginning of the 20th century, then that relic might be a little fragment of her bone. Okay, And Catholics keep this uh, and because it's part of her. And... We believe that when a person is saved, all of them is saved, body, mind, and spirit. And therefore, that little piece of bone is part of that saint. It's part of something which became holy in God's eyes. A second-class relic is something which the saint owned or used on a regular basis. So if I have St. Faustina's prayer book uh, or um, the pen that she used, that's called a second-class relic. It's not as important as a first-class relic. A third-class relic is just a piece of cloth which has been touched to a first-class relic. Okay. okay. And these okay. are very commonplace, and you might find them in a piece of... If you get a Catholic prayer card with a picture of St. Faustina, there might be a little piece of cloth in the bottom, and it says relic. It's a third-class relic. So these are things we call sacramentals, physical things in the Catholic life and the Catholic devotion which actually... Um, help us to pray and help us to stay, stay close to the Lord and cl stay close to the saints. Other sacramentals are things like candles, um, holy water, and other physical things like statues and icons and pictures and so forth that we use to help our devotions and our prayers. Because God has created us to be physical people, not just spiritual or mental people. Indeed, all Christians believe that God himself came down and took human form, took human flesh by the Blessed Virgin Mary and actually came into this world and took physical form. Therefore, the physical world is important for Catholics. Okay. So it, it's kind of like a 
A little piece of heaven, kind of. It's kind of like a little piece of heaven, in a, in yeah, a if sense. If you like, if you like, a little piece of that saint who's in heaven. Okay, yeah. and yeah. go ahead. I I look at it as kind of like when a loved one passes and moves on, keeping something that they held close to them. Except in this sense, it's a holy thing that is being kept and preserved and moved forward. Yeah, kind of like a family heirloom or a picture of grandma yeah. on the mantelpiece. Yeah. yeah, to me, that's what it kind of, that's the closest uh, normal modern way I could kind of tie that together. So with with relics, is it kind of like in memory of them or is it like this has, is it kind of in memory of this person or is it like it has some kind of ontological power that is... Well, there are certainly examples down through church history of relics that that um, have uh, ha- seem to impart a, a supernatural power or a grace. Not the relic itself, but the saint sort of working through that relic. Um, so, for example, a really good example is the saint uh, from uh, is it Syria or Lebanon? He's called Saint um, Charbel Makouf. Okay, Saint Charbel Makouf was a monk, a very holy monk, who died, I think, again, the beginning of the 20th century. After he was buried in damp, wet ground, uh, a radiance came forward, came up from, from the grave. And so they went and they dug up his coffin, and his body was, had, was incorrupt, had not, had not decayed in any way. Okay, So they took his relics, his body, and they put it in an, uh, an alcove in the church, and buried it there instead. And after his body was here, and all this is documented because it's fairly recent, okay, it's fairly modern. Mm-hmm. After his body was put in this uh, alcove in the church and bricked up, they noticed that um, a fragrant oil, like a perfume, was leaking out of the tomb. And people gathered up this oil on hankies and in little bottles, and they began anointing sick people with it, and they got better, got better, okay? So this body of St. Charbel Maclouf, which did not decay, was actually exuding this miraculous oil. Okay, so this is some of the weird stuff about Catholicism, okay? Right, yeah. Where, where the relics actually um, behave in strange ways. There's a book out called The Incorruptibles about various other Catholic saints who whose bodies did not decay. And when they opened the coffin, it smelled like roses. And they were absolutely as they were the day they were buried 20 years earlier. So... Therefore, there's lots of stories about these relics and so forth, which actually do seem to help people to participate in a miracle from heaven. Okay. What do you think about that, Michael? Have you, did you know about any of that? I honestly didn't know too much about the relics and all of that, so this is new I've heard a for little me. bit, but I didn't know. But it's, well, it's a fascinating study, and if you believe in miracles, these miracles are happening. Other things are like... Um, Statues of of the Blessed Virgin Mary that begin weeping, weeping tears or weeping oil, again fragrant oil, and these things are caught on video. And people, eyewitnesses, saying, "Yeah, the statues started weeping." Okay, supernatural things, and they took the oil away, and again they anointed people, and they got better, and so the prayers were answered. Yeah, on on um, to play David since he's not here. You know, he's an atheist, and he would probably appeal to naturalism. So. Under naturalism, there's really no place for miracles. Miracles don't happen. So I don't know what he would do with that. So I, I got to tell him. 
just yeah. to well, bug him. We, He's definitely going to have to listen to yeah. this one. Out of yeah. all the ones we've done, I think he'll need to listen to this one and uh, possibly the other ones upcoming. But I'll, I'll definitely be interested in what he has to say about it. Yeah. Because I leave my viewpoint open when it comes to miracles and things like that because I don't know. Right. Okay, miracles... Yeah, go ahead. Miracles uh, are at the root of the Christian faith, okay? Because we believe in the basic miracle that God came down and took human flesh and Jesus Christ was God in human form, okay? And the core miracle at the at, at the heart of the human of, of the Christian faith, of course, is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That he really did die, he really was buried, and he really did rise from the dead and defeated death. Okay, that is the core miracle. And if I find any Christians who say that they're a Christian but they don't believe in miracles, I say, well, you're not really a Christian then because you have to believe in the resurrection to be a Christian. That's one of the basics, okay? And therefore, you have to believe in miracles. Now, what is a miracle? A miracle is not God sort of leaning over the parapet of heaven and, and, and putting his finger down and saying, zap, there, I've interrupted the natural order. Instead, I believe that the natural order is actually... Um, designed with certain lacuna, with certain loopholes, if you like, certain spaces, and uh, it's designed, put it this way, to be a lot more rubbery than we think, to be a lot more flexible than we think. And a miracle is where something in the natural order, the way God designed it, actually functions in a way that's unexpected to the way we usually experience the natural order, okay? So, um, to use... Uh, and very often what we term as miracles are actually the natural order operating in a way that we don't understand and a way that we don't we not do not yet understand and therefore that's why as science advances an awful lot of things that people used to call miracles are now understood by by science there are still things like these statues that weep tears incorrupt bodies which science does not have an explanation for one of the most famous miracles is called the miracle of the sun at fatima in 1917, a village in, Port in Portugal where tens of thousands of people uh, came because three children, down the, I'll show you the pictures, three, three children experienced apparitions of the Blessed Virgin Mary from heaven. Okay, they saw her and she gave messages to them. And one of the messages was that on this particular date, there would be a, a, a famous, a, a wonderful miracle from heaven. Tens of thousands of people came together. It's all documented. There's photographs. And all, all of the people witnessed said they saw the sun spinning in the air and then the sun plunging down to the earth. And they were terrified because they thought it was the end of the world. Now, we know that the sun is millions of times bigger than the earth and the sun cannot plunge to the earth or the earth would be burnt up. So we know that it did not actually physically happen. However, tens of thousands of people perceived this happening. They really thought that was happening. The other thing is, before the miracle happened, it, it was a heavy downpour. Everybody's clothes were drenched. After the miracle, their clothes were all dry and the mud had dried up. So in this situation with a miracle, what we're talking about is something which undeniably happened and tens of thousands of people experienced, so we then have to try to find an explanation. We know the sun did not plunge to the earth because the earth would have been fried up, okay? But 10,000 people perceived that to happen. Therefore, something strange, something miraculous happened within their sense of perception, okay? Um, if I can go on a little bit about this, I saw some time ago an interesting graph 
and on the, on the vertical line of the graph was um, the range of uh, light waves that science knows to exist. And within that range was the amount of light waves that the human eye can perceive. And it was only a tiny little bit at the middle. In other words, there was a lot more light um, activity than we can actually perceive. Mm -hmm. On the horizontal line of the graph was all of the sound waves that we know exist. Okay. And in the middle of that was also the amount that the human ear can perceive. You know, we know that dogs can hear a whistle that you can't hear and so forth. Okay? Right. Um, so, in other words, the amount of light waves and sound waves that are available, but the amount that we can actually perceive is very tiny compared to what's out there. Therefore, there's a lot of room for stuff to happen um, beyond our sense perceptions. And this is the realm that I think a lot of miracles actually take place on the borderland, on the, on the fringes of those perceptions, where we begin to perceive or see or hear something which is normally outside our range of perception, but is a reality nevertheless. Okay. That's uh, interesting. As someone who obviously has never attended or is still learning more about the Catholic Church, I really like that explanation because it doesn't discredit science and it allows for growth within it and growth of the human perspective and doesn't discredit that. Where a lot of, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Fundamentalist. Fundamentalist churches. And not all of them, obviously, but we've noticed a kind of anti-intellectual growth within them. And I've always thought, why would you limit what God can do and what God will allow us to perceive and what he will allow us to learn through him? And so this is one of the things which helped to bring me into the Catholic Church, that in my fundamentalist upbringing, I'm afraid, and I don't want to slam anybody here, but, you know, I'm afraid that too often there was an anti-science, anti-intellectual bias, okay? And I respect that. I like ordinary people, and I certainly distrust um, smart Alex and, 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 you know, brainy intellectuals who are know-it-alls. On the other hand, to be anti-scientific and anti-intellectual is also not a smart position. And the Catholic Church when it comes to miracles, it seemed to have a lot of common sense on its side. So, for instance, as a Catholic priest, um, I'm sometimes asked to go and conduct an exorcism, okay, which is, uh, of course, to cast the demon, a demon out of somebody. We are trained in our understanding of the supernatural to always look for the natural explanation first, and only after all of the natural explanations are exhausted do we propose a supernatural explanation, okay? So, for instance, um, if Bailey comes to me and says, Father Longenecker, look at this piece of toast. I can see the face of Jesus in it. It's a miracle, okay, because he's seen, okay, there's a name for that. It's, it's a form of mental illness, okay. And so I would then say, before I look for any supernatural explanation, I'm looking for all the natural explanations. If someone comes to me and says, Father Longenecker, I've got a devil inside me. I need an exorcism. The first thing I say is, um, have you been taking any, 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 any drugs? Have you been receiving, uh, you know, psychiatric care? Not because I'm being mean to them, but because I want to ascertain the facts. You know, have you seen your doctor recently? Are you having particular emotional and relational problems in your life, which is causing you trauma and stress? All of these things can manifest as people feeling that they have something inside them which is dark and evil. 
However, while I look at the natural explanation, do I dismiss the possibility of demon possession? No, I've seen an exorcism. It is real. There are such things as demons. They can possess people, and the church has the power, like Jesus did, to cast them out. However, I don't jump to those conclusions, okay? I look for the natural explanation first. I used to be a paranormal investigator, actually. Um, I used to be a paranormal investigator. So that's something that I've always respected about the Catholic Church is you don't... If you're a paranormal investigator, you're not going to refer someone who's having a demonic case uh, to your local Baptist church. You're going to refer them to the Catholic Church. You're going to refer them to a priest because they know what they're doing and they have the authority. So that's one of the things about Catholicism that even though I'm not Catholic... I've always kind of respected. Yeah, I have a story here in the South, of course, where Catholics are in a, in, a, in a minority. And I got a call one time. We don't. It's not just demon possessions. Sometimes the people will have a haunting. There will be something in their house, which is a psychic disturbance. And um, I got a call once from a, a Baptist. And I went around and I said, well, I visited her home. And I turned up in my black robes and holy water in the lot. Okay, and she mm-hmm. said... Wow, she said, you're a real Catholic priest. I said, well, that's who you called. So yeah. I said to her, well, did you talk to your pastor about this? Because I don't want to step on the toes of my my Baptist brother ministers. Did you talk to your pastor about this? She said, yeah, he just told me to recite some Bible verses, but it didn't work. Okay, so um, I said, well, that's okay. I said, Bible verses are good. I said, but why don't you let me walk around the house and see if I can sense where the disturbance is? So I walked around the house, and sure enough, there was a disturbance there that I sensed. And we just, I led her in some simple prayers. Um, and what we do is we have simple prayers, which we use for this sort of occasion, and sprinkled the house with holy water. And, and the, usually the, the, the problem clears up immediately. All right. And just to add, one reason why I, another reason why I couldn't be atheist is due to my belief in the supernatural, belief in spirits and things of that nature, because every house I've lived in hasn't had a demonic or an evil presence, but has always had a presence where you know there's something else there. And usually after the only one that left was after a death in the family of her son. And so I've always held that belief that there is something more due to yeah. The spiritual, and what realm. impresses me about this, Michael, is that this is actually um, universal amongst the human race. When you study ancient religions, when you study contemporary religions, when you study any religion at all, this has been about the interface of human beings, mortals, with the supernatural realm. Now, one of my big grumbles about modern religion, modern Christianity in America, is that they're trying to forget all of that, and they're trying to turn Christianity into this religion of doing good works and being respectable and being politically correct and doing good things like feeding the hungry and helping the poor. All of that's great, but that is a result of Christianity. The core of Christianity is, like all religions, an encounter with the supernatural, an encounter with God, interaction with um, joining in the great battle between good and evil and realizing that there are demons and there are angels and there is a battle between light and darkness that we're called to participate in. I think you've gave a great explanation. <laughs> All right, and for our next question, according to your tradition's theological perspective, what must one do to be saved? Well, the Bible is clear about that. It says, to be, to be saved, you must believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be baptized, okay? 
and that's the Christian gospel in its in its simplicity. The Christian gospel in its simplicity is repent of your sins, say you're sorry, and turn to have faith in Jesus Christ. Now let me explain what that means a little bit more. First of all, the first stage of repentance is super brilliant as far as I'm concerned because one of the big problems in the world is everybody assuming that they're right and the other guy is wrong. Okay, this is what my definition of pride is. Pride is assuming that I am right and everybody else is wrong. Okay, we see this in politics, we see this in the workplace, we see this in entertainment, we see this in media. Everybody taking sides and saying I'm right and my my tribe is right and everybody else out there is wrong. Now the problem with that is that if I'm right, therefore being right is good. And if being wrong is bad, that means not only am I right and you're wrong, but I'm good and you're bad. Okay? And what do good people do? They get rid of things that are bad. They solve, they get rid of the bad. So what do I need to do as a good person? I would need to get rid of you as a bad person, okay? And this is what we call war, okay? This is what we call racism. This is what we call tribal conflict, okay? So this problem at the root of humanity is of saying I'm right and you're wrong and therefore I'm good and you're bad is the core problem of humanity. Repentance is the Christian answer which says, actually, let's stop for a minute and look at ourselves and say, I'm not right all the time. I'm wrong. I'm something which the Christian church calls a sinner, okay? I haven't got it right 100% of the time. I've got it wrong. Furthermore, not only am I wrong, I need help. I need help to actually be that person God created me to be. The person who gives me that help is the Lord Jesus Christ who died on the cross and showed me the way of self-sacrifice and the way of union with God. Therefore, this is what faith is, saying, right, I need help. He's the one who's going to help me. I'm going to trust in him. I'm going to be his disciple, and I'm actually going to become a follower of him so that I can become all that God created me to be. And this thing about saying I'm wrong is something which Catholics do all the time, okay? Now, I know as an evangelical Christian, I did this transaction, as I call it, when I was five years old. Came home from church and said with my mom, I'm sorry for my sins, I accept Jesus into my heart, which is kind of evangelical language, okay? But as a Catholic, I go to confession once a month, which means once a month I go to, to a priest and I say to him, say to God through the priest, um, here are the sins that I've done. I'm still a sinner. I've still done these things wrong. I'm not right all the time. I'm trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. When we come to Mass, remember I said the first thing we do is we make an act of confession. We confess our sins together and we receive Jesus and put our faith in him. So being saved for a Catholic is actually the same as it is for evangelicals, okay? When some evangelicals say to me, well, have you accepted Jesus into your heart? I say, yeah, I've accepted him into my heart, but I've also accepted him into my mouth and my stomach because I go to communion and receive the body and blood of Christ, okay? <laughs> I think you did a really good job of it, especially with your beginning explanation of explaining the problem with ego inside of humanity and how its salvation is a very humbling thing, something to keep you grounded and to remind you that none of us are perfect. If I could just elaborate on that, some people think that repentance is, it means that Christians have to be a doormat, that they have to be groveling and they have to say, oh, poor old me, I'm just a miserable worm, I'm just a terrible sinner all the time. In fact, repentance is a, also a marvelously creative step because obviously all of us cannot learn anything until we realize that we don't know it, okay? And so the f first step after repentance is actually saying, 
I don't know everything. I'm not right all the time. Therefore, now for the first time, I can actually learn something. Furthermore, the second aspect of repentance is I'm taking responsibility for myself. One of the huge problems in the world today is everybody, in blaming everybody else for their problems, also expects everybody else to solve their problems, okay? The government has to solve my problems. My dad has to solve my problems. My mom, my grandmother, my boyfriend, my girlfriend, my boss. Somebody has to do it for me, okay? Because I'm basically blaming them for not doing it for me. As soon as I repent and say, I'm wrong, I'm not right 100% of the time, I'm also taking responsibility for myself, okay? And by putting faith in Jesus Christ, I'm saying, right, with him, I can do something about my life. I can actually take responsibility. And <clears throat> historians actually show that this basic psychological transformation of the human race, which took place as a result of Christianity in the first century in the Roman Empire, transformed, the human, transformed human history. Because <clears throat> human history up to that point was weighed down by fatalism. Fatalism, as you know, is the belief that the gods rule my fate. Things beyond my control rule my fate. Predestination rules my fate. Something else rules my fate. I'm not responsible. The pagan world, the pre-Christian world, was, was um, enslaved to fatalism. In the Roman Empire, the pagan religions were such that they were fatalistic. The people believed that the gods and the goddesses who were whimsical and could do whatever they wanted would rule their destiny. Okay? Christianity said, no, when you repent, you're taking responsibility for yourself, and with God's help, you can change your life, you can actually change your family's life, you can change human history. And this transformation in humanity's psychology was historical. It changed things forever. And you can see it. You can see the chart of human history. From that point on, human beings, ordinary human beings, really started to take control of themselves and take control of their destiny. Sorry, I went on at some length no, there, but you can see I, I feel pretty passionate about this. Oh, we, we love the details and you going on length because it really expands and gives everybody a right. good idea and understanding of why and what this podcast is about. All right, and for our next question, what is the role and nuance between faith and works in one's faith journey? Well, I think I touched on this already a bit, but basically Catholics would say there's not really a, for the, for the active believing Christian, there's not really a distinction between faith and works, okay? When I have faith, it will be worked out with a certain kind of life because that's what faith is, okay? One of my, the best examples I love from the New Testament is the story of Jesus walking on the water and inviting Peter to step out of the boat in a stormy night and walk on the water with him. And this is a perfect example of faith. Je Peter knows he can't walk on the water, but he sees Jesus walking on the water and says, okay, I'm going to step out of the boat and do something amazing. I'm going to walk on the water to Jesus, okay? Actually, when he begins walking on the water, as the story goes, he loses faith and he starts to sink. And Jesus reaches out and takes his hand and lifts him up, okay? This is a perfect picture and which illustrates what we mean by faith. It's not faith and works. Faith and works are one united action. Faith and works go together. So as soon as I begin to take faith, I step out of that boat, I begin to walk the Christian path, and those are the works that are actually combined with the faith that I have. Catholics believe that both the faith and the works are not done by the person, 
So very often Catholics will be accused of, of believing in salvation by works. We've never believed that. We always believe that the, both the faith and the works are empowered by God's grace. Both the faith and the works are God's power working within us, both to give us faith and enable us to do the good works. So if I, if, if I give $20 to um, somebody who's, uh, you know, a homeless person, that's a good work. But I would say that good work has been inspired and empowered by the faith that I have in Jesus Christ who tells me to give to everyone who asks of you. Okay. Earlier, you kind of might have already answered this question already. Um, what does sin do to you? What does sin do to you? What is the effect of sin on people? You kind of already answered okay. that earlier. Sin is, um, well, I just finished reading Lord, rereading Lord of the Rings. I don't know if you're a fan of Lord of the Rings or seen the films. I haven't read them. I know I need to, but I haven't. Okay, well, in... You can borrow the movies. I have all of them. <laughs> well, I, I would two. recommend it to everybody. Lord of the Rings is a great classic of Western literature, okay? And it also happens to be written by a faithful Catholic. And Tolkien in Lord of the Rings shows us the effect of sin by the effect of the ring on the people who carry it. And the ring is this obsession with power, okay? So it goes a little bit back to what I was saying about pride, being I'm right all the time, okay? The really root effect of sin in life is it eats away our psychic and our spiritual life like a cancer. It soon becomes an addiction, and there's all kinds of addictions. We think we, we think of drug addiction, but there's sex addiction, there's porn addiction, there's power addiction, there's money addiction, there's all forms of addiction in our society, and some of those forms of addiction are actually approved by our society, and we think those people are terrific people, you know, people with fame addictions and, and uh, money addictions. We actually say, oh yeah, he, that person's a winner, that person's a great success, you know, in fact, they have an addiction, they have a uh, they have a psychological and psychic problem. And sin is, is, is the thing which causes that. Sin is this attraction to something which is a lesser love. God calls us to the highest love, the love of God. And any lesser love, which could be good in itself, which we put in the place of God, becomes um, a sinful um, aspect of our lives and can become an addiction. Okay. And um, therefore will destroy us. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. That, that part is important. For people to know, hmm? said so that part's important. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, so how do you view the Eucharist, and what implications does that view hold? Okay, Catholics are called to believe that Jesus' words in the Gospel, where he says um, in the Last Supper, "Take and eat; this is my body, which is given for you." And he says in John chapter six, "If anyone eat my flesh and drink my blood, he has life within him. If anyone does not eat my flesh and drink my blood, he does not have life within him." We take those words actually pretty literally, and we believe that at the Mass, the priest is reenacting what Jesus did at the Last summer, Supper by the power of Jesus, not the power of the priest. By the power of Jesus in the church, the bread and the wine become the body and blood of Jesus and are received by faith with his people. Now, this is in Catholic theology called the miracle of transubstantiation. And let me explain what that is, okay? Transubstantiation is a, a medieval philosophical explanation of the miracle we believe takes place on the altar at Mass. And it can be explained very simply like this. 
In the Middle Ages, in the, philosoph in the philosophy of the Middle Ages, was rooted in Platonic philosophy, the belief that underneath the physical things that we see is an, in is an invisible level of reality. Okay, um, so within my body and my mind and my brain is my soul. Okay, and that soul is the eternal part of me. Okay, the part that you can't see, but it's a reality. And the way I illustrate it is this. Uh, in one of the rooms at our home, we have a lot of family photographs. And one of the family photographs is of my family when I was two years old. And I'm there in my dad's arms, okay, and I'm this little baby. And then there's a photograph of me when I'm 10, and then at my high school graduation, and then at college, and then at my wedding, and then later on when I'm ordained as a priest, and just a few years ago. And, you know, you look at all those photographs and you say, well, yeah, each one of those is Dwight. Okay, I can see Dwight is there, and yet Dwight's physical form has changed many times over the last 60 years, okay? That invisible part of me, um, which you could call the soul, would match up with Platonic philosophy saying that's the invisible form, the invisible aspect of Dwight. Well, medieval ph philosophers believed that every physical thing had that invisible aspect, okay? And that was called the substance and substance in the Middle Ages was used in an almost opposite definition to what we use substance for. By substance, we mean the physical thing that you can sense with your senses. They meant by substance the invisible thing which was real, which was going to be eternal, which would not rot and decay and die away. And so they said it was the substance of the bread and the wine, the invisible aspect of the bread and the wine, which is transformed to become the body and blood of Christ. Okay. Therefore, we say that it is. It, we talk about the real presence. We're using the term "real" in a philosophical sense of re the reality is the substance which has been transformed. Therefore, we say this is the body of Christ under the appearance of bread. If you take the bread to a, to a lab, will it test as human flesh? No, it will test as bread. Okay. But we believe that the transformation has been taking place on the invisible level of the bread, and that's where the word transubstantiation comes from, substance across. Okay. I hope that's a good explanation. Yeah, yeah, it is. All right. For our next question, if God is truly omniscient, do we really have free will? I know me and Bailey personally, and I think on the podcast have went into this, but I'd like to hear your viewpoints on it. Yeah, this is a wonderful question and one which, of course, a lot of Christians will ponder endlessly. I, it's never been that much of a problem for me because it, I can distinguish between being omniscient and omnipotent. Okay, God is omniscient and omnipotent, but that means he knows everything, but he is also all-powerful. But just because a person knows something doesn't mean necessarily that he causes it to happen. Okay, so while he is omniscient and knows everything, he doesn't necessarily make everything happen. Okay, because he's granted us free will. And one of the mysteries of the Christian faith is to believe that he granted humanity free will knowing that we would mess up, but he was going to use even our mistakes to bring about his will in the world in the end. And his will in the world in the end is not a particular specific game plan point by point. His will in the end is for the completion of human history, the completion of the human race, and the fulfillment and the happiness of the human race and his plan for the world in the, in the largest sense. The best ex illustration of this is actually the cross of Jesus itself, because here it is, 
God sends his son into the world, according to the Christian story, God sends his son into the world for the salvation of humanity and to reconcile humanity to, to God and to usher in the kingdom of God, which is the kingdom of peace and justice and forgiveness and love and light. However, what do human beings do? They gang up on him, they exclude him, they marginalize him, they blame him, and finally they publicly torture and execute him. Okay, so probably the worst thing that human, human beings could actually do, which is to kill God's son, God uses for the salvation of humanity and says, through this action, you're actually being, I'm actually forgiving you. And he pays the price for the evil that's happened. So this is what's called God's providence. God's providence is fulfilled and completed by his omniscience and his omnipotence. In other words, by handing over free will to his children, they fulfill his will because he created them, okay? So if you're a father, for instance, you would say to your children, uh, a really simple example would be, for instance, uh, saying to your children when they're 16, okay, here's the keys to the car, you've got your driver's license, I'm giving you freedom, go ahead and use it, okay? And maybe the kid goes out and he breaks the speed limit and gets a speeding ticket and has to pay the fine for $150 or something, or does something even worse, okay? But maybe the child, through that experience, learns an, an, an important lesson in life, and the father's will for the child has been fulfilled, even though that's not what the father would have planned for the child. Okay, again, it's a simple illustration, but it's what we call God's providence. God's providence is worked out um, not only in spite of our evil, but through the evil that we do. And this is one of the, the strangest mysteries. Again, I'll refer you back to Lord of the Rings, I guess because I've just finished reading it. But um, Gollum is this terrible character in Lord of the Rings who is greedy and duplicitous and murderous and an absolute slimeball. But he is the one who at the end of the story actually turns the plot and actually brings about the redemption, the defeat of evil and the redemption of the world. So it is, and Tolkien is using that as a wonderful example of, of providence. In other words, um, the story turns out with a happy ending, despite all of the bad things that happened leading up to it. And almost through all of those bad things that, ha that happened. Yeah. So it's kind of God works through free will, in a sense. God kind of foreordains things, but he doesn't like... Like, in the end, God knows what's going to happen, but it doesn't mean that he's determined everyone to do right. everything they're going to do. And being a Christian is saying the Lord's Prayer, in which we say... Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In other words, not my will be done, but thy will be done. And so a fully alive Christian, which is what we call a saint, is a, is a person, an ordinary person, who has submitted their will totally to God's will so that God's will is actually being enacted through their life. Okay. So when you see somebody like Mother Teresa, who's a famous modern saint, who's giving her life in service to the poor, we would say, her will has been totally dedicated to God's will so that God's will is being performed and enacted through her. And she actually said that. When people said, how do you do this? She says, I'm God's pencil, the pencil that God writes with. Okay. okay. Gotcha. All right. And for our next question, which obviously we touched on earlier, do you think religion and science are at odds? The world would have us believe that science and religion clash and... Um, the book I've just completed, which is being published in a few weeks' time, 
charts out how this has come about over the last 500 years with Enlightenment philosophy growing and becoming the mainstream in Western culture. And this philosophy was very materialistic and very science-based, only science-based. And science actually ruled out faith before faith ruled out science, okay? The major scientists all through history have been actually Catholic priests and have been Catholic monks. Okay, all through the Middle Ages, science was promoted by the Catholic Church. And it was only through the Enlightenment when uh, materialism and positivism began to be the prevailing philosophical trends that those are the people who ruled out the supernatural and ruled out faith. And so the divide between science and faith has not come from the faith side. It's come from the science side and from those who very often want to say science has no room for God. Well, God has room for science, but science has no room for God. So there is a clash, but faith has, faith, uh, science has not contradicted faith. The Catholic Church teaches that anything that is true is part of Catholic truth, and anything which science discovers validly is actually part of Catholic truth. That doesn't mean to say that all of the technological developments of science are necessarily good. Okay, the Catholic Church does criticize certain scientific and technological developments as being unethical because man has taken them too far and taken those scientific and technological developments beyond man's proper role as a steward of creation. Okay, that's, I'm trying to think if I have any questions to add on to that. If I could but, comment a little bit further on that. If oh, you take, for instance, yes. the massive pollution of our natural world, the Catholic Church would come back on this, and Pope Francis has been quite vocal about this and say, you know, mankind has gone too far down that road of scientific and technological development. This has got to the point where we're actually destroying the natural world, okay? When it comes to some of the advancements in human technology, biological technology, like human cloning um, and uh, human and animal genetic experimentation, where they're implanting, uh, you know, animal... Gen, um, chromosomes into humans and so forth and experimentation on human fetuses and so forth and using human fetuses to harvest body parts that's where the catholic church says hang on your scientific advances and your technological advances are actually harming nature and harming the future of the human race put the brakes on it yeah it kind of ties to that just because you can doesn't mean you should yeah all right and for our next question, in your opinion, how should Christians interact with politics? As little as possible <laughs> in politics per se. However, um, the Catholic Church down through history has always had an interaction with politics right from the beginning. Very often to its, to its detriment and its error when the Catholic Church has assumed uh, political power and financial power, it has not turned out happy for the Catholic Church. Instead, the example is always in our Lord Jesus Christ. And remember, Jesus lived in the time of the Roman Empire when the Roman Empire and the politics of the Roman Empire were all powerful. And his reaction was to live within that system and to um, obey the system and be um, working within the system, but always giving a message of light and forgiveness and love to counter the natural effects of political power and the, and the straining after political power that humans are prone to. So this is the role of the church today, not to take political sides, but to be able, on the other hand, to affirm what is good, let's say Republicans and Democrats, to affirm what's good about the Democrats, to affirm what's, go affirm what's good about the Republicans, but also to criticize what is evil or what is um, 
um, corrupt in, on, on both sides, okay? So that's the role of the church with politics, to be affirming and supportive of what is good and also to have the, the mind and the courage to criticize what's bad. See, I'm, I must say that is the most unique and different answer that we have got through these interviews because most churches we've been to have been very pro-politics and even saying that if you don't believe in what this guy is saying, you're not really this or you're going against God's will. And I, I respect the kind of, hey, you guys have some good, you guys have some good, but we need to talk about the negatives too. Instead we've, of just, we've not always been very good at that, and certainly some Christians and some Catholics have jumped on political bandwagons and identified their faith with the Republicans or the Democrats. And again, in whatever age we live in, that's always a mistake. Yeah. It always ends in tears. And because faith is what it is, it doesn't matter how, how the parties change because obviously we're humans ever changing and kings and presidents and prime ministers have always sought, sought the church's approval and and tried to get the church to sanction what they're doing on both sides yeah all down through history and i've always as someone who has always tried and been very skeptical of a lot of organizations and the powers that be for lack of better terms it's good to hear an outlook like that instead of just going, oh, this side or oh, this side. It's very refreshing. What is one general thing that you think Christians in America should work on? You know, I lived in England for 25 years. Uh, and I think my criticism of Americans when I've moved back here, and I love America, so don't get me wrong. I'm not being unpatriotic. But I think Americans can be um, very parochial, very narrow-minded, okay? Part of this is because it's a big country with two oceans on either side and with very peaceful neighbors for the most part on to the north and the south. And we are a hugely powerful, hugely affluent nation and world power. And I think we take this for granted and... I'm all, therefore, in favor of Americans traveling, Americans asking questions about other cultures, Americans being a, bit of, a lot better educated than they are about geography, and especially about world history and about our own history. I'm, I'm afraid too many of my fellow Americans and fellow Christians are kind of blinkered in their approach uh, about all of these things. And I think the, the, the broader their approach in education and in their travel and their experience, the more open-minded they're going to be, the more tolerant they're going to be, and the more embracing of every kind of truth that's out there they're going to be. That's a good answer because I haven't heard I don't even heard that specific response from anyone yet. So yeah, and I I agree with I agree with that because when I look at America, we are very we view ourselves as the world revolves around us. Yes, instead of we are part of the world and. I've always been one when people go, hey, should I travel here or do this or learn about? Yes, do it. Learn about your history. Learn about the world history. Learn about the world around you. We are all in this together. This is one of the reasons I was drawn to the Catholic Church, that the word Catholic means universal. And 
I'm very moved when I celebrate Mass in my church on a Sunday morning to look out across the congregation and I see El Salvadorians and Mexicans and Nigerians and Indians and Polish people and French people and English people, as well as all the Americans. There's a huge cross-section ethnically and racially, but also a wonderful cross-section um, in socioeconomic terms. Very often my experience of Protestant churches in America is that they're not actually divided by theology, they're divided by class. And so all of the Presbyterians at my mom's church, for instance, they all look pretty much the same because they're, they're all college educated and they've, they're doctors and lawyers and, and, and um, you know, business owners and so forth. They're from a, a middle class or upper middle class strata. And if you were to go to the Methodists and the Baptists and the Church of God and the Assembly of God and whatever, you would pretty much find the same social class. That's why they have such good fellowship, because they're actually very similar socially. In the Catholic Church, we have this huge range, and I might have um, an executive from Michelin Corporation uh, sitting next to a Mexican yard worker. That's cool. So I find that very encouraging and inspiring, actually. Yeah, yeah. because yeah. it... It shows at the end of the day, we are all more like, and we're all human, and we all are looking for truth and looking for salvation instead of just, hey, I'm a rich guy and I don't want to be with you guys. It kind of sure. bl- stirs the pot a little bit and brings everybody more cohesively. So... As we're bringing this to a close for a last question, if anyone at home wants to know what would be the process of becoming Catholic, what would that look like? Well, before you become Catholic, you have to become Christian, okay? And you have to understand the Christian gospel, as I explained, which consists of repentance and faith, the very basic steps of saying, I'm wrong, I'm wrong, I'm not right 100% of the time, and I'm putting my faith in Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. And then the question comes up, of course, how are you going to practice that faith? And in the Catholic faith, I'm a Catholic because I believe it is the fullest historical, universal expression of the Christian faith, which is still available to, in the world today, and one which is actually founded by Jesus Christ. He said to Peter, in, and it's recorded in Matthew's Gospel, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. He didn't say, um, go out and start your own church somewhere. He said, I'm going to build the church, but I'm going to do it with you. And this church is still in existence today. So... When I go to Rome, for instance, it, I find it totally stunning that when you look at the Basilica of St. Peter's, St. Peter's in Rome is actually built on the site of the grave of Peter. Peter was buried there, and he was martyred in the um, Circus uh, Vaticanus, which was one of the Roman arenas, which was just about 100 yards away from there. And Pope Francis, the successor of Peter, lives between those two sites, Okay, this is pretty amazing to me. The 2,000 years later, the man we claim is the successor of Peter by direct line of succession is still there, and he's still, he lives on the same lo- in the same location. Wow. That's awesome to me. Um, yeah. And therefore, to become a Catholic means to actually study the Catholic faith, learn the Catholic faith, and then one is received into the Catholic Church. If you have not actually been, if you're not actually a Christian, that means actually being baptized uh, and confirmed in the Catholic faith. And this usually happens at Easter after about six months of training and instruction. And the instruction is called, has the name RCIA, which simply means Roman Catholic Initiation of Adults. 
So you go to your local Catholic church and you ask how to be instructed in the Catholic faith. The priest or the person who's doing the instruction will talk to you about your faith journey. If you're already a Christian from another denomination, they will share with you how to make this transition to the Catholic faith. If you're not a Christian at all, they will give you the basic instruction to be able to be baptized and received into the Catholic Church and begin to practice the faith. But I should warn you, that's the beginning of walking on the waves. It's not the end of the story. Gotcha. Yeah. All right. Well, this has been really informative. You have a couple podcasts, right? Would you, like to, would you like to plug those? I would encourage your listeners, if they're interested, to go to my website, which is DwightLongenecker.com. And I, I blog there almost every day about matters of faith and culture. But also I have a number of uh, podcast series and also some video instruction courses, six-week courses in various aspects of the faith, which are available um, also through my blog. You have anything else? Uh, it's been a real pleasure and really informative, and I appreciate your time and appreciate you welcoming us in. Well, I'm flattered that you guys around. have asked me to be involved in this interview, so thank you very much. I hope you get lots of listeners for your podcast. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. Thank you. So it's been good. Um, so next week we're going to be, or next week on the podcast, I should say, we're going to be talking about our first Catholic Mass because we've never been. So we're going to be talking about should be what that's going to be like should be an interesting experience especially coming from our backgrounds and the progression through the churches that we have done yep so it's been real it's been fun it's been real fun and, and we'll, we'll see, see you guys next week, next week.